The following content could in fact be explicit, contain moments of explicitity, flex of explicature, trace elements of explication. Actually, that last one's a goal. It's Thursday, January 14th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A lot of arguments take some time to break down mentally. Gotta think about them. I'll give you one. The claim that this was the most bipartisan impeachment ever. Most bipartisan. How can an effort that includes members of two groups more include members of two groups than another effort that included members of two groups? Maybe I shouldn't think of bipartisanship as being like pregnancy. It either is or it isn't, but more like nudity, which seems absolute, right? Dictionary definition. But, you know, you could be naked except for your pinky ring or naked but for a bonnet or naked but for a hat and sailor suit on your upper torso, and then you're Donald Duck. But one claim that doesn't take much effort to assess is claims of censorship. If you hear someone saying, you can't hear what I'm saying, then you can pretty much be right in saying you're in error. The big argument among conservatives, some conservatives, the dishonest ones these days, is not that they're not lying. That's an argument they're making. It's an ancillary argument. They don't get much sympathy from people who have already decided that they are lying, so they only make it among themselves. For the most part, the big argument isn't that, oh, it was an incitement. Again, that is an argument, and they will say that and argue it, sometimes narrowly. Some of them do it wantonly. But the big argument, the most common argument, the argument made loudest, the most prevalent argument right now, the one they think is their best case to get some sympathy with members of the public is that you can't hear us making an argument. And what Donald Trump did and what the current Twitter, YouTube, and other bands are doing is taking away that quality that makes every arguer so special, the voice. This is political. This is not about safety. It's not about any of the rest of it. It is about shutting down voices that they and their staffs don't agree with. They are trying to silence your voice. 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 Allies in the media seek to censor conservative voices. Socially, we are tired of political correctness. I think we're being burdened with it. I think it's making us weaker as a country uh, globally. And I think that he represents that voice of that, that frustration, that political correct frustration. What is needed now is for us to listen to one another, not to silence one another. What is happening to conservatives on social media, I mean, we are being censored out of existence. We are being silenced out of existence. It's a sad day uh, when you're literally talking about losing free speech. It's a sad day when big tech has more power than big government, that they can censor the president of the United States. But not his son, I guess. I want to be fair. It would, in fact, be troubling if big tech censored conservative voices for conservative content. What they are doing, in fact, is censoring dishonest voices from dangerous content. Oh, but who defines if it's dangerous? Here's the beauty part. Sometimes that's a good question. Often it is. But in this case, reality. Reality defines if it's dangerous. Events do. Precedent. The things that actually happened. So a retroactive ban afterwards have led to action. It's not that tough a call. And the call for it to stop, having been made on the floor of Congress, 
a network Sunday show, a speech from the White House lectern, the public airwaves of the most listened to radio show in America, and the most watched cable news station in America. That's, that's where all those quotes in that montage are from. That, that you heard that is pretty good evidence that the voices can be heard. I played them. You heard them. If I were, as an experiment, to broadcast here, podcast here, some of the discussion having been held by the so-called voiceless that's going on right now on Gab or Parler or whatever version of Parler exists right now, it wouldn't help Andy Biggs, Britt Hume, Rush Limbaugh, anyone else you heard there. Because the conversation on Gab or A-Chan, that's not shocking, that seems quite normal, that conversation can be had and is being had anywhere and everywhere. It's on Fox News all the time. But the specific Gab content that I could grab, that is the stuff that pushed those forums to the far reaches of VPN shadows, it would in fact appall the vast majority of Americans. So to those people speaking up on behalf of the voiceless, I say I hear you, brother. I hear your point. Thus proving it's a bad one. On the show today, I spiel about a story swallowed by the storm in Washington, a life and death and death story, actually. But first, the impeachment of Donald Trump can be taken up by the Senate to try for conviction. They could do this at any time, though Mitch McConnell says not until after President Donald Trump becomes ex-President Donald Trump. So what's the point? Well, it's the constitutional clause about disqualification. There it is, right there in the Constitution, written down on parchment. But what does it mean in practice? And why you law professor Melissa Murray discusses up next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? So in the history of the gist, I don't know if I've done this before, but I'm going to have a whole interview based on one clause of the Constitution. It is Section 1, Article 3, Clause 7. Very important clause, especially in the next few weeks. You know what? I'm going to take it easy on you. Maybe I'll be very liberal and expand it to one other clause of the 14th Amendment. Joining me, just just because, is Melissa Murray, who is a professor at the NYU School of Law, a co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, and uh, she also leads the Burnbound Women's Leadership Network. So the woman who leads the women who will lead the way, very important leader in the field. Hello, Melissa. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm going to read, not that you don't know it and maybe have it memorized or tattooed, but I'm going to read this clause in question. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to the indictment, trial, judgment, punishment according to law. Okay, it's really the first part of that clause. It is about the punishment that can happen after an impeachment, and that punishment could mean disqualification from office. What is the actual lived precedent on this, rather than just as a piece of writing? 
So we've had impeachment, certainly for presidents, and we, we had a very recent impeachment of a president that didn't result in a conviction. But we've also had impeachments of other public officials, including judges. And in some of those cases, though certainly not all, the conviction on the charged articles of impeachment then subsequently turned to another question. I mean, once you've convicted someone, there is the option then to permanently disqualify them from holding office in the future. And so in the couple of occasions, there have been times in our history where the Senate, having rendered a conviction on articles of impeachment, has then decided to take up the question of disqualifying the individual. And that occurs by a a simple majority vote. So the conviction requires two-thirds of the Senate, but then when you take up the separate question of disqualification, that is just a simple majority. Yeah. And I think it's happened, what, three times with judges? Three times with judges. Like the most famous time where it mattered was when the Senate convicted Alcee Hastings, who is serving as a federal judge on articles of impeachment around abusing the public trust of his office. And he then subsequently, of course, was removed from his judgeship, but he then ran for Congress and represented a Florida district going forward. So that's a very famous situation where the conviction did not necessarily result in disqualification. The Senate never took up that question, and the individual went on to hold another very important federal office. Now, judging just from the plain language of the text and the overall impeachment clause, there are, you know, this was written in the 1700s, but there are questions of tense, for instance. The president, vice president, and all civil officers shall be removed from office on impeachment. And then we come to the clause that I just read about impeachment not extending further than removal from office and disqualification. But it does say the president, this one could argue, I suppose some have, that it's all premised on the president's removal from office. If we're talking about someone who isn't the president, but is an ex-president, might one logically argue that this doesn't apply? So this is a really terrific question, and I think it's one that will come up during the next couple of weeks because it seems obvious, although the House has voted and approved articles of impeachment, the Senate is not actually going to begin the process of conducting a trial on the articles until at the very earliest, January 19th. And so the issue of removing the president is really moot because his presidency will have come to a conclusion at noon on January 20th. Um, so the question is, does this particular clause apply to ex-presidents? Can you impeach or have trials that result in the removal of someone who's already been removed from the office because of expiration? I think that the framers would not have wanted us to have a situation where a president who is engaged in misconduct, these high crimes and misdemeanors, was unaccountable to the people or to the political branches simply because the misconduct in question occurred as his term in office was ending. And so, you know, that would have left the president above the law so long as he did this misconduct toward the end of his term. I can't imagine that the framers would have had that outcome in mind. So it seems clear to me as a matter of constitutional design that you can, in fact, have an impeachment and a trial of someone whose term of office has ended. This may be the first time we've taken up the question, but just the logic of the constitutional order would seem to allow for that. Right. Although the Constitution does lay out what the qualifications and disqualifications for the presidency are, and it never says disqualified is someone who lost one of these votes after an impeachment. Well, 
if you had, like, I mean, this goes to the question of does the conviction of someone whose term of office has actually expired, does that count as a removal or was the whole question of removal negated because his term ended? One way that you might get around that in this particular circumstance is that the articles of impeachment were issued and approved prior to the expiration of President Trump's term. It's just the trial that is lagging. And so um, when you think about that, maybe we just sort of think about the fact that the trial is just deferred and it's almost as if we're holding it in abeyance and he actually is going to be removed and then all of the other terms and the clause fall into place. Right. Impeachment akin to an indictment trial, akin to a trial, but not a criminal trial. So if I were to argue something like they shouldn't be disqualifying, I could say there's an analogy to a statute of limitations running out, or there is an analogy to prosecuting someone for a crime where the situation is no longer um, applicable for the ongoing commission of that crime. I don't know. I don't know how far that goes. I don't know how far analogizing impeachment to other areas of civil law, what the courts think of that. To be clear, impeachment is not like a criminal trial. So I think the analogy of sort of thinking about all of it as mapping on to a criminal trial doesn't necessarily hold in all respects. I mean, there are very fundamental differences between an impeachment and a criminal trial. I mean, the procedural protections that are afforded to a criminal defendant um, are are obvious because, and they're in in place because the defendant is at risk of losing life, liberty, or property. Um, In an impeachment, it's basically like, are you going to lose your job, your very important job to be sure, but a job nonetheless. So you don't have the same kinds of due process protections, nor do you have the expectation that those who are going to be hearing your case and ultimately rendering a verdict are impartial. The senators very clearly know what side they are on in all of these circumstances. So we don't have an impartial jury. So the whole idea that this can be analogized and any ambiguities resolved simply by looking to criminal trials, I think, is a little given the import of this particular remedy. Um, Congress needs to have opportunities to be able to hold the other branches accountable. And impeachment really is the most profound way and certainly the most effective way that Congress has to keep the president from abusing his authority. I want to be clear on how settled the law is on this. So there might be a senator who, you know, should have come to an actual trial, and that's not assured. But there could be a senator or two who will argue, um, I don't think that disqualification is what the founders meant. I don't read the Constitution that way. We shouldn't be doing this because of maybe some of the devil's advocates arguments that I've made in this interview, in fact. Now, to remember Trump impeachment 1.0, there were arguments. In fact, this was a main argument by Alan Dershowitz that, well, you can only impeach over an actual crime. And from my understanding, the legal community does what you just did, kind of scoffs at that. I want to ask about the other argument. I didn't argument. mean for it to be so obviously her. <laughs> no, but Sorry. it's good. It's an audio medium, and it really shows that, you know, you could say anything you want, but there was just very, very little legal agreement, if any legal agreement at all, that that was a good case. But what about what we're talking about here? If a senator were to say, I just don't agree with this, I don't interpret the Constitution that way, would he be on at least a little bit firmer standing than the you can only impeach over a crime type argument? There's so much uncharted 
territory here, just because we have never been in a situation where we are on the verge of a presidential transition. And we are also thinking about having an impeachment trial for a president because a week earlier, he may or may not have incited an insurrection on a coordinate branch of government. So this is nothing like what the framers contemplated happening. So what we have now are their words that we now have to map on to this particular circumstance. So, so is the question, can you disqualify a president who from serving in the future if he hasn't really been removed from office, but he perhaps has been convicted and the removal is moot because his term has already expired? I think this really goes to the question of impeachment being as much a political Mm-hmm. institution than it is a legal institution. It, it's both. And, you know, one of the things I think that the senators will have to grapple as they go forward is, you know, do you want to make the argument that a president who I think is colorably accused of having some role in inciting violence against a coordinate branch of government should in the future be permitted to hold an office of public trust. I think it's a very hard argument to make, not as a legal question, but as a question of politics and how the public might receive that. And, you know, we are an incredibly divided society, but I think there are a lot of people along the ideological spectrum who looked at last Wednesday, or I guess it's January 6th now, it's more than last Wednesday, and were really alarmed by what they saw, like the, the, the idea of an armed insurrection to prevent Congress from doing its constitutional role in certifying the electors of a duly held election. Yeah, but a political argument, I mean, the people making that argument, presumably, I don't think the Constitution allows this, they they would be using a legal argument or a legal-seeming argument in the pursuit of a political argument. But that's not a bad thing. The, the idea that impeachment is a political process, that's not really a, a bug of impeachment. That's more a feature, right? No, it's a, it's a feature. It's certainly a feature. I mean, and I'm not saying that these aren't good or plausible arguments. My, my point is that we don't know. Like, all of this is, we're in such in a situation that truly is unprecedented. Um, you know, you might have situations where some aspects of these proceedings might be litigated, maybe even litigated to the Supreme Court. Who knows? Um, and, and then we have questions whether the court would even hear this or determine that the whole question of how impeachment is conducted and how the trial is conducted is constitutionally committed to the other branches. And, and therefore, you know, it's not something they can weigh in on. There's so right. many open questions here that, I mean, it's really hard to speak with certainty about what these provisions mean, in part because, as you say, there's ambiguity in the language. The Constitution itself is meant to be broad and open-textured. It is subject to interpretation, and people may read these texts and arrive at different conclusions. Mm-hmm. So it's it's possible that a Senate trial happens and the president is disqualified and then, or the former president, and then Donald J. Trump says, I'm appealing this to the Supreme Court, and who knows what the courts will say. Well, it's not clear that he can appeal it to the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, first you got to go through the lower courts, and you have to have um, and you have to have standing. And maybe they'll say, "Well, just some guy declaring to run for president doesn't have standing." Well, I, I, I mean, I think he definitely would have a claim and an injury, um, and therefore he would have standing. That's I mean, all he ever I, I, wanted. That's all he ever wanted, Professor, was a claim to an injury. That's the entire <laughs> Trump presidency. This is all to say that. Um, 
The next few weeks, I think, will be very interesting. Um, certainly, I, I've said over and over again that this presidency has been the gift that keeps on giving to constitutional law scholars. I mean, there never has been an opportunity to dig into all of these vagaries of the Constitution, and, and they're all important right now. So this has been, you know, kind of a terrible gift in a way for the country, but um, it's been illuminating in a lot of ways, allowed us to really think about a lot of these things. Yeah. Were Donald Trump to be disqualified from office, is it clear that he couldn't engage in fundraising, that he couldn't engage in, you know, forming political packs or even using some of those funds for other purposes, which is permissible under the current law? So, again, the disqualification really sort of goes to that question of a public office. And, you know, that is what is sort of specified in the document. And obviously, the founders and the framers of the Constitution weren't thinking about PACs. They weren't thinking about fundraising necessarily. Like, a sort of modern-day reality of politicking was not something that they contemplated. Uh, so I think there could be a very colorable argument that he may be disqualified, if, if that were to happen, from holding future federal office, but that doesn't necessarily, or, or even a state office, but that doesn't necessarily prohibit him from being involved in the politicking aspect of party politics. Mm-hmm. I was thinking more of if you are running for office, you can raise funds based on that, but you have to be a declared candidate in some cases. If he declares a candidacy for an office he cannot hold, would he therefore be, not be allowed that avenue of fundraising? You know, could he declare candidacy himself? I, I think you would then likely have some kind of lawsuit explaining that he had already been disqualified and therefore could not validly be on a ballot and could not fundraise as a candidate himself, although he could certainly, I think, help others in their fundraising efforts. Okay, so the last thing I want to mention, just so we talk about it, different part of the Constitution. Some people have pointed to the uh, 14th Amendment, which has, uh, this is a post-Civil War amendment, no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, so far this uh, applies to the president, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. I like it as a thought exercise. Hey, maybe this could apply to what Donald Trump did, but is there any other use for it besides just thinking about it and having our interest peaked. So as you say, this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is a post-Civil War amendment. Um, it was meant to deal with the prospect that as Reconstruction began in the South, one of the ways the South tried to thwart Reconstruction was by electing former members of the Confederacy to serve in Congress, including in one instance, Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy, and he showed up for work at Congress. And, you know, there was this question, how can we have these individuals who have been sent here to thwart us and who were loyal to a regime and insurrection, how can we allow them to be part of our government? And so the 14th Amendment was enacted with this provision to prevent Confederates from serving in future office unless there was some period of amnesty. And, and spoiler alert, there were actually two laws passed by Congress, um, one in 1876 and then another, I believe, in 1892 that did provide amnesty and relieved this burden from those who had previously served in the Confederacy. But I think the question for our purpose today and whether this might apply in this circumstance or whether it might be a conduit, um, it's typically been raised as a conduit to removing the president in lieu of impeachment or the 25th Amendment. And 
And again, scholars are debating this, and it's very much a live question. So my perspective is not the only one that matters. In my view, this really is a disqualification clause on mm. um, preventing those who served in the Confederacy from serving in the future in the United States government. I don't think it was understood as or would have been intended to function as a removal clause, unless in the circumstance the person had been in the Confederacy, then was subsequently elected, and then it was like, no, we're not having that person. That person is not eligible to serve. Does that make sense? It does. And I would would like to thank you, Melissa Murray, NYU law professor, who taught me a lot about the Constitution, but also taught me that there's a word called colorable, which is a fascinating word, and it means like legally plausible. Yeah, I think tenable, colorable. I love all the ullibles words. I like to use them as much as possible. I like the B words, like be knighted and be be Bestirred, the... so many mm-hmm. of them. Yes. All of them, all of them. Melissa Murray, NYU Law Professor, thanks so much. Thank you. And now, remembrances of things Trump. Remember when Trump was on Twitter? Seems like ages ago. Did they even allow 180 characters back then? Could Jack Dorsey not even manage a wispy goatee back then? Were they constantly pushing some army hammer text J-Lo scandal thing at me? Hard to remember. Long, long ago. Well, I do remember this. He was there and he was angry. He was petty, nasty, and small, which fans will know is the trio of three beloved Snork characters, the Snorks being a group of puckish underwater sea creatures that NBC invented in the mid-80s to take advantage of the fact that the Smurfs had somewhat lazy trademark lawyers. No, in fact, it wasn't the Smurfs or the Snorks that Trump loved to hit. It was the dwarfs or those dwarf adjacent. Over the course of his life on Twitter, Trump had plenty of names for plenty of people including seven famous little people who helped Snow White. He had a choice between Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie. Okay, Crazy wasn't one of the seven dwarfs, but he was, you know, one of the neighbor dwarfs who worked a neighboring mine shaft. Donald Trump did once call Saudi Prince Alawid bin Talal Dopey, and he called Elizabeth Warren Goofy, also not a dwarf, but dwarf-like. And when he did so, he would sometimes use the Latin nomenclature. You know, she's got this goofy friend named Elizabeth Warren. She's on her Twitter rant. She's a goofus. The nastiness transcended dwarves. And also there was this. President Trump on Tuesday called Stormy Daniels a, quote, horse face. About a woman he had sex with. He called at least half a dozen people besides Adam Schiff little. There was little Marco, little Bob Corker, little Michael Bloomberg. There was also crooked Hillary and lion Ted Cruz. I think we could safely say that even before the Twitter ban for incitement, Donald Trump shamed his way all through that platform. And in many, many ways, he used names that were demeaning, belittling, unpresidential, and in the case of Lion Ted Cruz, accurate. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. And now the spiel. In the early hours of yesterday morning, Lisa Montgomery was put to death by lethal injection. I've mentioned Lisa Montgomery on this show before. She was the only woman on federal death row and the first one to be put to death in almost 70 years. When I discussed Montgomery, it was to talk about her crime and her circumstances. And one argument that I came across in the New York Times rooted in feminist theory, I guess you would say, it was an argument to spare her life. I didn't buy that argument, but I do believe that her life should have been spared because I don't believe in the death penalty as a practical matter. It strikes me 
thinking about the death, the execution of Lisa Montgomery, that there is a great story to be told around it, a story that should be handled by a greater storyteller than I am. I'm thinking something in the tradition of those Joan Didion, John Gregory Dung collaborations, which of course can no longer happen since he is dead. In many ways, Lisa Montgomery was the last, and it may be the latest, but let us hope that she was the last fatal casualty of the Trump administration. He killed her, so it's inarguable that she was a fatal casualty of Trump. I mean more in the metaphoric sense, that we had no chance to hear about her, not on a wide scale, and to consider the execution because it was drummed out by the din of rioting and the murder of an innocent man, indeed a hero, Capitol Policeman Brian Sicknick. Lisa Montgomery committed a horrible, horrible crime. She ripped a baby out of a mother's womb. She killed the woman. Her name was Bobby Joe Stinnett in the process. But Montgomery's life was a horror as well. Her lawyer used the word tortured. It is apt. She was severely, severely sexually abused by family members. She was prostituted by her mother. She was married off as a young woman to a stepbrother. A litany of appalling action and appalling failures by anyone in power to protect her, by the way. I laid out the details of the crime. I didn't want to get too graphic. I could have. I can't even get to a fraction of the details of Lisa Montgomery's life because it would be too off-putting. You, you couldn't listen to anything else after that. Does that, however, does the circumstances, the horrible circumstances of her life, excuse her murdering someone? Certainly not. And it was a brutal murder at that. Let's not gloss past that. Does it mitigate what her punishment should be, however? Are we showing mercy or are we denying justice to the family of Bobby Joe Stinnett, including the 16-year-old daughter who was the object of Montgomery's crime? She survived. Her birthday was last month. Think about what that means for this young woman. Birthday. Her birthday was the day she was sliced out of her mother's womb by her mother's murderer. Again, takes a more powerful storyteller than I am to put all of this into words, not the facts of the case, but how we should conceptualize and grapple with the tension between mercy and consequences. But you know what? We were never made to grapple with that. We were never really asked to. We debated impeachment. It was a necessary debate. That was also a debate about the definition of consequences and accountability, but that was had over the most powerful person in the world. It crowded out the same discussion about one of the least powerful. Montgomery's execution was halted a few weeks ago because her lawyers couldn't properly consult with her due to COVID, but that stay was not permanent and she was killed. And we never debated, never discussed. In fact, almost none of us even knew about it. I saw it announced as a text alert at about 1.45 yesterday morning, the morning before this. I hadn't even known the execution was scheduled after the appeal was accepted over COVID. And I was paying close attention, or I should say I had been paying attention until a mob descended and the world spun into chaos. And Lisa Montgomery, a figure shaped by and guilty of great injustices, was executed in the name of justice. There are so many stories like this. In fact, so many aspects of what should be public discussion that have been tabled, who am I kidding, thrown out the window by President Trump. I don't think when he's off the stage, we will simply all get back to joyously embracing what's good about America. We will actually have some time and space to confront some of the ugliness about America that's not Trump-specific ugliness. To some extent, Trump's monstrosity 
was holding together a fragile coalition of citizens with different concerns, priorities, and arguments. And those are all going to come. But at least when this guy goes, a day that can't come soon enough, we'll be able to, to use the term of art these days, do the work of having those arguments. We'll do so out from under a shadow that blotted out the sky. And that's it for today's show. Shana Roth produces the gist. She predicts that Trump is going to look at the clause, disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, and argue, well, I'll hold it. I just won't enjoy it. Look at my facial expressions this whole time. I promise not to enjoy it. Margaret Kelly is the gist producer. She says the idea that when you connect the dots on a paper menu at the diner, that you always get a fish. It might not be 100% true, but it's certainly colorable. Jasmine Ellis helped us this week. She finds that black and white thinking hardly colorable at all. Alicia Montgomery finds the idea that many of these assertions are colorable to be in a gray area at best. The gist, vowing forever in an act of solidarity, never to poop in Jared Kushner's toilet either. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.